Welcome to Beyond, conversations with artists, makers, explorers who have gone outside of the norm to create their own true world, to sing their own precious song. Each of us is born with a song inside, but most will die having never sung it. Imagine if, as a little child, instead of being asked, what will you do when you grow up? What will you be? Or what kind of job will you get when you grow up? If instead you are told, now is the time to listen. As you grow, listen for the sounds of your song. The song that comes from your blood, your bones, your people. Listen for the melody, the verses, the tune. And when you hear your song, sing it. Imagine that kind of world. That's the kind of world I'm devoted to building. I am your host, Daphne Cohn, the creator of multiple online programs, courses, and within a community for artists, makers, and writers dedicated to the courage and practice of singing their own song. I ask you, are you ready to sing your own song? Are you ready to go beyond? few things before we dive into this interview. I recorded this conversation back in 2020 for the art and activism series that I did then. It's a fantastic conversation and I can't wait for you to hear it. But first, a reminder that Illumin happens every Monday through Friday. It's free. It's a sacred creativity hour, a sacred hour for making. You can come any day, anytime that you want. It is 6 to 7 a.m. L.A. time, 9 to 10 a.m. New York time, and 2 to 3 p.m. London. And then Emerge, which is the embodied writing workshop series that I hold, is happening again. We're opening the doors to that on Wednesday the 15th, and then this series actually begins on Wednesday the 29th and then runs for eight weeks. It is amazing. It is truly the thing I am most proud of because of what it does to you as a participant. It is movement, it is writing, and it is coming into true, into your own raw, wild, and holy. There's so much I could say, but for now I would encourage you to go to daphnecone.com forward slash emerge and check it out. And if you want to get on the waiting list, then there's always some kind of bonus that I offer folks on the waiting list and I open the doors there first. There's space for eight people in each series and I will be holding two, one on Wednesday morning Eastern time and one Wednesday afternoon Eastern time. It's all on the website. You can check it out there. And now on with the interview. Nadia Boltz-Weber is the author of three New York Times bestselling memoirs, Pastrix, The Cranky, Beautiful Faith of a Sinner and Saint, Accidental Saints, Finding God in All the Wrong People, and more recently, Shameless, A Sexual Reformation. She is an ordained Lutheran pastor and the founder of House for All Sinners and Saints in Denver, Colorado, a quirky congregation she served for over 10 years. Nadia travels domestically and internationally as a speaker and has been featured on NPR's Morning Edition, On Being with Krista Tippett, Fresh Air, CNN, and in the Washington Post, Bitch Magazine, The New Yorker, and The Atlantic. 
International media coverage includes BBC World Service, The Guardian, and magazine features in Germany, Poland, and Switzerland. I'm your host, Daphne Cohn, for Art, Activism, and the Great Unknown, 12 conversations with artists, makers, and activists on using creativity to craft the world they want to live in. In my conversation with Nadia, we talk about having grace and compassion inside of the pain, the need to be seen as good, the amazingness and the limits of social media, making space for ambiguity, self-care and activism, being a leader by going first and never doing it alone. Welcome, Nadia, to Art, Activism, and the Great Unknown. Thanks for being here. Well, thanks. I'm excited to have a conversation with you. Me too. I'm very excited. So I want to start with this, uh, actually something that you said, which is, you said at 19, and I'm going to say, I'll, I'll preface this by saying I've been reading a couple of your books, so I'm not going to say, I won't remember which one it's from, but I'll just share the quote, and if you want to reference the book, you're welcome to. Um, at 19, my goals were to travel more, to live in a commune or an intentional community of some sort, and to contribute to world peace through revolutionary action. So first, I'm curious what your life at 19 looked like, that those were your goals. And, <laughs> oh, I and, love that question. No one's ever asked me that. <laughs> um yeah, I was, I was, I was definitely an activist when I was 19. I mean, I was arrested the first, I was arrested at a protest when I was 18. Um, and I was involved in, I was involved in several causes. Uh, one was uh, anti-apartheid protests. So at 19, I, was, I actually lived in a shanty town on the Auraria campus to protest the university's um, investments in apartheid South Africa. And I was not a student at the time. <laughs> I was just like an out. I was what you would now call an outside agitator, I guess. (laughs) And then, um, and then I was really involved in the Colorado Coalition Against English Only at that age as well. Really trying to fight um, the language, uh, the English only laws here in Colorado, even though it did pass. And um, and then, to be honest, I was involved in a this. Never talked about this. Oh God, I I was involved in an armed land rights battle in northern New Mexico, in Tierra Maria, New Mexico. Uh, it it had armed. to do with it. Yeah, it had to do with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo and uh, and the fact that um, the the people the people who had been on that land for generations and generations and generations were Mexican. I mean, before we stole the land and moved the border down. And, um, you know, of course, America broke its treaty with the people on the land there. So anyway, it was, yeah, there were guns. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so when I was 19, I was very heavily involved in in a lot of uh, direct action protests and whatnot. Yeah. But that revolutionary action changed form dramatically over the next uh, 10, 15 years or so. So, and, and of course more as, as your life went on. So what does that look like now? It does not necessarily as activism, but just what, 
what do those words mean to you now? Mm. Well, I, I had, I had this sort of double-edged sword with having been politicized so young, which was that I was fortunate to, to have been politicized when I was a teenager and to be, um, to be somewhat embraced by a group of uh, older activists who taught me a lot about what white privilege is, about power structures, whatnot. So the double-edged sword of it was I was lucky enough to have that consciousness sort of raised in me at a young age. The double-edged sword part of it is that I then thought I knew shit. Like <laughs> then I just, <laughs> then I thought, oh no, man, I know stuff. And around race in America and stuff like that. And um, it really was only when Ferguson happened that I began to see how much I didn't know, how much there are, when you're white, that there are worlds that are hidden from you, um, realities that are hidden from you, that black people know about what whiteness is in America and very few white people know what blackness is in America and that and it was humbling because I thought I knew things so um anyway uh so now I mean I I part of what happened was I was just very sidelined uh by addiction and um and alcoholism so it took me a while to get my life together after that and um so I really sort of worked on myself and what the truth of what the truth was in terms of harm I'd done people, harm I'd done myself, that really sort of excavating that you have to do if you're gonna get sober. And I really kind of focused on that and what it meant to be like what spiritual fitness meant in terms of going, oh, that maybe there is a power greater than myself and it's not me. And how can I have enough humility to rely on something other than my own ego and leadership and pride. <laughs> um, so I, I, and then, you know, ended up finding myself, you know, in seminary and then um, starting a church that uh, is a church I feel comfortable showing up to since there weren't many of those uh, dotting the landscape, you know? <laughs> you know, it's interesting because one of the things that you say about being well, there's a couple things that I have here that I want to um, touch on about being this leader and being leading a church. But the first thing I want to start with is what you have said you call preaching the gospel, which is proclaiming the purifying, forgiving love of God. And I, I want to start there because religion's really confusing for a lot of us. And trying to make sense of how it fits in a world where it often seems to be that what it says and what it does are two very different things. So sure. when you talk about what preaching the gospel is as mm-hmm. the purifying, forgiving love of God, just say more about what that looks like. Well, I just think that it is, it is grace that we even get to exist. Just that alone is such a gift. I mean, you look at how vast the universe is. I get so freaked out seeing those like um, Hubble telescope pictures that show, <laughs> I mean, we're not really meant, maybe we're not meant to know <laughs> like how huge it is. 
and we've yet to find life anywhere but this little blue marble we live on and which means it's either extremely rare or maybe even only here and how magnificent that we get to experience it so my virtue my goodness my wokeness could never have earned me the right to be born and live on this beautiful planet it's grace you know like on some level i think grace is our source code it's where we come from and so i guess when i talk about the purifying forgiving love of god i'm talking about that source and trying to connect back to that source um, when we don't have enough forgiveness for ourselves or for other people, when we can't extend grace to somebody, when we can't be the biggest, best version of ourselves, we can draw upon our source. Um, and I think that there's a humility in it and a beauty in it. And, and it gets, our source gets to tell us who we are in a way that nothing else gets to. And it, and it, and it's our source that we return to when we die, I believe. And so on like the most basic foundational level to be, to be as sort of, um, to indulge in some theological non-specificity, you know what I mean? Like not, yeah. you know, um, to be as general as, as I can, that's what I mean. And, um, and, to me, there's like, there's a hope in that and a beauty in that, that if I'm only relying on my own resources and my own goodness, or I'm only relying on the goodness of other people, I'm just going to spend my life eternally disappointed and resentful. But if I think there's this thing we all came from that we get to draw upon, that we get to return to over and over, that feels a little more hopeful to me. Yeah. Okay. I actually want to come in touch on that piece of the goodness because you talk about this and it was really valuable for me to hear you talk about it because I've, I've wondered about it, which is one of the things that happens with, I can only speak as a white woman. So I see it in white women is this thing about being good. Like that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and this need to be seen as good, like and but it also gets in the way to think of ourselves as good yes. and to be seen as good. Yes, it gets in the way, and that's why I'm like, look, I think that we do so much. We are in much more danger of doing harm to ourselves and other people when we're sure we're acting out of our goodness and our virtue than we ever are when we're definitely acting out of our vices. I mean, that's why I say like, you know, police stations have vice squads. Where's the virtue squad? That's where we get in trouble. I mean, when you're absolutely certain that you're right and you're good and the amount of the amount of the amount of self-justifying thoughts and behaviors that we continually have to indulge in to keep it up right? Because look, if I think of myself as, let's say, like a good friend, but I uh, talk shit about my colleague to our boss, and then my colleague gets fired. Now I have to keep 
maintaining that idea of myself as a good friend. And so what do I do? I go, well, they weren't really as good at their job as other people. Or I know that Stacy had been saying she was wanting to move on anyway, so this is probably helping her, right? So the, the things that we have to do to get back to the I'm still a good person, it's, it's phenomenal what we can, what the twists and turns we can make. And, and so when people, I know people don't ever really like the word sin, but like, what if sin is, um, is, is cognitive bias? Like, what if it's all of those self-justifying thoughts, all of the ways that we think, hey, if something good happens to that person, it's because of nepotism. But if something good happens to me, it's because I worked hard. Right. I mean, that's called the a confirmation, not a confirmation bias, it's called the fundamental attribution error. So people have studied these things that we do in terms of self-justifying. Um, and so... Uh, yeah, I think that whole need to think of myself as good and to be seen as good, that like, look, if we are really trying to work, work for a better society, that cannot be our motivation. Our motivation cannot be what can we do or tweet or post a picture of ourselves doing um, so that we are now seen as good. Because now the definition of good is wokeness and being right. anti-racist and shit. And it's a big trap. That it, it's just. It, you will always fall on your narcissistic sword. <laughs> That's what you're doing. Well, and what you're saying too is it's also, it will get in the way of actually a lot of times taking action because if the, if something that I see out there in the world is in conflict with my idea of who I am, then I will try to justify that in order to maintain Correct. my idea of goodness. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. All the time. So, so much of my work is about going, hey, let, like Martin Luther, when he uh, was writing his friend Philip Melanchthon, he was talking about being a, what he calls a theologian of the cross, meaning somebody who actually talks about um, the reality of the world and the reality of suffering and the reality of empire alongside any kind of God talk they do. And he said, a theologian of the cross calls a thing what it is. And so the power of just calling a thing what it is when it comes to our own failings and faults with the failings and faults of our of the systems we're involved in, I think that that is just such a, a necessary and powerful and ultimately liberating step to yes. just call a thing what it is. It has to be the first step. Well, and it also seems like this, a lot of the conversation that happens is, and I, I've had this myself, is I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to get it wrong, blah, 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 blah. But if I can acknowledge within myself, I will get it wrong. I will like fuck up so many times. It's not even funny. And it's just <laughs> like, that's just part of the game of being human and also naming things as they are. Well, now I can take action without having it have to be anything more than the action itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hard. I, I, I think I wish. I wish that in the activist circles that I've seen and been adjacent to or been involved in, I really wish there was more grace. Like I wish that there was 
a grace and an understanding around the inevitability of not knowing things or getting things wrong so that it felt like more of a zero depth entry invitation to people to start the work because i what i do see is a lot of a lot of if you're not doing this then you shouldn't be doing that i guess um you know i i a couple of weeks ago on substack i published a pastoral letter to fellow white folks that had a, some um just a pastoral sense to it, meaning, look, I get that like it's um, it's scary to think the world might be different than you thought it was, and and everyone gets to start somewhere. And I know that it's terrifying to think you'll get things wrong, and you will. But like I see you, and I believe in you, and I think you can do this, and I totally get why you're freaked out right now. Like just a little gentleness, but with the same message, and. And I think, I'm hoping that some of my readers who were kind of beginners in this work felt that that was an invitation for them to sit at the table and to, and to do the work together instead of just being terrified by all of the intense rhetoric right now. Yeah. I like this word, zero death entry. Mm. Yeah, so that does speak to the grace because even as I say that, like, oh yeah, I, I will screw up. There's, I'm not going to get beyond the fact that I'm also that it's also really scary. To totally it is. Yeah. Um. So, well, that but, you know, I do want to say some just a follow up to that, which is yeah. that. <clears throat> social media giveth and social media taketh away. So I think that there are amazing things that happen because, because of social media, but then also it has its limits. And I feel like a lot of its limits is in nuance is in um, uh, being able to have non-dualistic thinking, you know, with um, subtlety, those are the things that are lost. And so uh, what I see is, because the things that we're talking about in terms of, let's say, racial justice in America are so important and there's so much suffering just generationally that we're dealing with and people's, the, 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 the sanctity, the protection, the honoring of, of human bodies, you know, that this is, the stakes are high, that um, I feel like we can say that and have, and say gently to people, um, it's okay to, to like, everybody gets to start somewhere, right? I don't, I don't see that having that kind of spirit behind it is the same as compromising on calling a thing what it is. I, I always want to be able to, to have both, you know? Yeah. Um, well, and you've said, so there's two things that you said that, that make me think of that. You said, sometimes the fact that there is nothing about you that makes you the right person to do something is exactly what god is looking for yeah well if you read the bible you'll see that i am right <laughs> this is this is the, the pretty much uh like jesus never scanned the room and thought who who has their shit together here and i will send them to go tell people about me you know it was always the stumblers and <laughs> the sex workers and the fishermen and you know i mean I, I don't know how Christianity ended up being quite so 
you know, pious, pearl-clutching, you know, sanctimonious bullshit. <laughs> because if you read the text, you're like, that is not how it started. <laughs> <laughs> well, so this is interesting because I was listening to an interview with Austin Channing Brown, and she said, there is a deep difference and I really want to hear your thoughts on this. There's a deep difference between the Jesus that black folks worship and the Jesus that white Christians worship. The Jesus that the black folks worship doesn't ask questions like, but does the gospel really have anything to do with race and justice? Black Jesus doesn't hesitate to say black lives matter. Black Jesus stands for the oppressed, cares about those who are most marginalized and not just cares, sits with, lives with, fights for, is angered by the mistreatment of, protests with, while white Jesus is primarily interested in self, in self and money and capitalism, and how much can I get? How much power can I hoard? It's all about self, and it's all about the preservation of self, of ego, mostly power, a deep desire to wield power over others. How... How do you see that difference in your own experience? Well, first of all, I love that you read Austin. She's a dear friend of mine. We might have matching tattoos. Anyway, um, (laughs) there's a group of us who have tattoos that say wild and holy. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, um, she's she's an extraordinary human. So yes, this is why reading Austin's words is a perfect example of why I refuse to walk away from Christianity, even though I did for 10 years. I look a decade of my life. I couldn't have anything to do with it, but the reason I am still in the game now and will not walk away is because I think that images of Jesus, the gospel, scripture, theology, liturgy, those things are way way too potent uh, to be left in the hands of those who only use them to justify their dominance over another group of people. So historically, like when she's talking about white Jesus, that is what I hear her saying, is that the, uh, the powers that be use theology and, um, and images of Jesus to exert dominance over other people. So that is why, that is the history of our country. I mean, this is why I think Christians have some very particular uh, reconciliation and truth work to be doing in this country right now, because, um, you know, Christian theology was used to justify chattel slavery. Um, it was the, it was, <laughs> the reason we were so so um the reason we so easily stole the land of native people and committed genocide against them was a doctrine the doctrine of discovery so when you can say look my exertion of dominance over you is not about me it's about god when you can get the creator of the universe to co-sign on your bullshit <laughs> uh, it's ex- history history proves that's extremely effective. But you look at like womanist theology and womanist Bible scholars and how they interpret scripture and how they approach theology as black women. um, It's, it's, it it is a beautiful liberative thing. uh, I would say for all people to be able to read the text from, uh, from their perspective. 
this actually brings up something else that I'm wondering about because as you became a Lutheran minister and started your own church, you did it in your way. And speaking of just like in your answer right there, like, oh, here's a way we can read the Bible. This way we can be in conversation with people who are studying it this way. And it's the same, whether it's in activism, it's the same in creating the world we want to live in. There's something about this idea, but especially in religion, do we need it to be legitimized by something outside of ourselves in order for it to be true to who we are and then lead from there? Oh, um, we'll say more about that. So I, so I understand. Okay. So when I was, when I was reading and listening to interviews with you and your, and learning about how you created the church of all saints and sinners, right? That's right. House for all sinners. That's right. (laughs) House for all saints and sinners. And, um, and it's like, oh, we're going to do it where all the chairs are in a circle. There's not a third of the of the sanctuary isn't left for the the person who's giving the sermon and everybody gets to participate so someone's <laughs> going to take someone might do the liturgy honestly these words i don't really know a lot of what they mean <laughs> That's but, okay. no, you're, doing someone, great. you're doing great okay great <laughs> <laughs> but someone's going to do this or someone, and i'm going to have it be this way because this is how it matters to me this is what makes sense to me and, and then I'm going to interpret when I see this in the Bible, I interpret it to mean this, and this is how I'm going to make my sermon. This is how I'm going to write my sermon based on this interpretation, because this is what makes right. me. So right. it's kind of like, well, does anyone need to legitimize that? Or do we all just like, yeah, this is what the Bible means to me. This is what it means to you. This is what being an activist is. This is how I want to sure. be this like that. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, yeah, we live in a time of complete subjectivity on some level. And so, uh, and which I don't always think is great. Uh, but it, I think I've always said that you have to be deeply rooted in tradition in order to innovate with integrity. So in my case, you know, I have a graduate theological education. I have a top notch theological education and actually I'm, I'm in, in so many ways, a very orthodox Lutheran theologian. And so uh, there are certain ways that I'm traditional, I'm just not conventional. Um, And so for me, the importance, uh, you know, being rooted to tradition, being rooted to uh, the, 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 the really sort of basics of the faith and scripture that to me was really important because I think it provided integrity to all of the innovations. So I think there's so much freedom uh, when we're a little bit rooted. So I think that uh, when I see people who just aren't rooted to any kind of institution, any kind of tradition, any kind of orthodoxy, then it can be a little bit, it it can feel a little bit more a hundred percent about the self as opposed to saying, finding my place within the whole if that makes sense yeah so like for instance um you know a lot of people don't want to don't want to sing old hymns right because maybe they don't agree with every theological 
proposition within the hymn, <laughs> which I get. Some people just want to sort of discard all the old hymns if they don't agree with every theological proposition in them. But I actually um, am more prone to say, hey, let's join our voices with those who came before us and honor that that these words were meaningful to them, even if they don't particularly suit us now. So um, I, I just think having a hand you know, one hand reaching behind us to into tradition and into things that came before us and one hand reaching ahead allows us to be in the present in a really particular way that's rooted, but still creative. Yeah, and I can see that in activism and creating the world, whatever that world is that each person is looking to create for themselves through the, either their art or activism, but is that idea of you you have that one hand reaching back and that's part of the whole uh, learning, the studying, but also the listening to those who were before. And then with that knowledge, with holding all of that, then there's, as you say, innovating with integrity, then there's moving forward. And it allows for, um, you know, a little humility as well <laughs> to go like, hey, we, we can't just assume like suddenly we have everything right and all of the answers and everyone who came before us was misguided and wrong. Oh my God, the people who are going to come after us are going to have the same thoughts of us. You know, I mean, just maintaining a modicum of humility around yeah. stuff can be, um, can be helpful. So, um, Coming back to that idea of humility, because this was like you said earlier, how when you were 19, the, the challenge of that or the double-edged sword was that you thought you knew things and yeah. that this, this is something I think about a lot, especially as it relates to activism and just one's work, but this idea that we know and and the thing, one thing that I loved in reading what you had to say and, and listening to what you had to say is how steeped you seem to be in this idea of ambiguity. And I want to share one, I want to share two specific things and then I want to go from there. You were talking about on the altar that you didn't want Alma White, who was a founder Uh and a bishop of the Pillar of Fire Church, but she was also anti-Catholic, anti-Semitic, anti-Pentecostal, racist, and anti-immigrant. You didn't want her name on the litany of saints. And you said, I want racists to stay in the racist box. When they start sneaking into the saint box, it makes me nervous. But that's how it works. On All Saints Sunday, I'm faced with sticky ambiguities around saints who were bad and sinners who were good. And there was... Um, the other thing that you had said that I really, really like this is you said, my own fundamentalist writing will always lead me to want two sets of labeled containers. In this case, bad, the conservative people who hate the gays and good, the liberal people who love the gays. I might always put people and things in those containers, but the problem comes when I start believing that God uses the same sorting system. So yeah, ouch, right? Yes. <laughs> because we want still stings that still stings me i mean look this the important thing i feel like i need to say right now is that when i talk about 
grace and forgiveness and ambiguity and holding paradox and not thinking dualistically. I do not do this out of an abundance. I do this out of a deficit of all of it. So uh, the only reason I talk about all this stuff is not because I'm an expert. It's because I'm continually a novice. And, um, and just, I mean, I had not, I wrote that, I don't even know, eight years ago. And I've not heard some, I have not read it myself or heard somebody read it. So it was like hearing it for the first time <laughs> you said that. And I still cringed. Like, <laughs> it continues, it continues to be hard for me. But, but look, one of the things about where I was when I was 19 is I had left, you know, I was raised in a fundamentalist church. And in fundamental, you can take the girl out of the fundamental, out of fundamentalism, but you can't take the fundamentalism out of the girl. And what I realized was when I left all that intense dualistic thinking, you're either saved or you're lost, you're Christian or you're, you know, not, you're good or you're bad. When I left that, I didn't leave it. I just replaced the labels on the containers. And so I got so into activism and leftist politics. And again, it was like, you're either down with this cause or you're, or you're, a, you know, a horrible, evil capitalist, or you're, you know, you're either this or that. It was all the same kind of dualism. And I, that is my native language. I love that shit like chocolate. <laughs> I, I mean, I am so drawn to that kind of thinking, and yet I know it's not where life and life abundant is for me. I know it's not where where softness and mercy is for me, or where reconciliation resides, or any of right. those things that I'm desperate for. They, they they aren't to be found there. It is it is a fickle lover, to and so um, like it. Even in this moment, you know, with, with, you know, so-called cancel culture and the call-out thing, man, live by the call-out, die by the call-out. You know, my friend jo uh, Jacob Smith is an Episcopal priest in New York, and he said, look, we're all three bad days away from being an internet scandal, and most, <laughs> of, us are, most of us are already on day two. Like, when is it my turn? You know, I mean, it, it there... It, it does not feel like a truly, it's, it's seductive and it does not feel like a truly life-giving place for me, for me to be. Um, so my work has been to sort of untangle that, not just replace the labels, you know. And that comes back to two things that we've talked about, about being good and about grace, because mm -hmm. there is something I mean, I, I think the human mind just wants to categorize like that. We all, I don't know anybody who doesn't yes. do that, but yes. it's, there's something about, this is what's in the same way that I'm good. Please see me as good. This is what's good. And this is what's bad. And if I can just know that, then it doesn't have to be so damn scary because right. it's certain there's a certainty, but also what you're talking about with the grace as we move forward <laughs> as artists, as activists, whatever way we move forward, that knowing, holding the ambiguity gives that space for grace. It does, because like, look, I, I do not want to be boiled down to just the worst thing I ever said or the worst thing I ever did and for none of the other stuff to count. 
And so I, I just can't bear doing that to somebody else too. And so I only, the only reason I extend, you know, I, I'm so obsessed right now with compassion is like, I'm desperate for other people to have it for me, to be honest. And so it's where, and I think that like, if we're talking about wanting to change people's hearts and minds with wanting to change systems, what, where is the place of compassion with that? Because all I know is like, when somebody has been truly in a space of compassion towards me, and they want me to see something about myself that I need to work on, if they're in a place of compassion for me, it creates this softness where I, I can relax enough to hear what they're saying. If what they're doing is accusing me and, or calling me out, I really am either going to become defensive or I'm going to say you're an asshole or, you know, I mean, I, but I don't necessarily consider the truth of what they're saying. I just react negatively against it. And, and so to have compassion for people is not the same as to say, you know, we, we, we think that everything about you is wonderful. So I, I just think it, it's as, like in, in Les Miserables, like what changed Jean Valjean ultimately? What shifted the thing, these things inside of him and made him a better man? Was it the accusations of Javert or was it the priest holding out these candlesticks after he'd robbed him and going, you left the best. These are for you too. It was that grace and mercy that, that like changed him. And I just think we're wired that way. And yet it doesn't feel like a go-to move these days. <laughs> well, I think it's, it's a hard go-to move because we're so often on the other end of that, right? So when, just as you say, I, the, one of the reasons compassion is so interesting, so compelling to you right now is because what you want is people to have compassion for you. Yeah. And in the same way, as we try, as we say, okay, I'm going to approach this with compassion i'm going to approach this with some grace in my heart and yet i keep being met with the hard edges so forget yeah. it i'm closing yeah. down yeah. for sure for sure no doubt of course that's how humans do you know but like can it be can it be a home base we seek to return to you know i mean i yeah it's hard. It's hard. But, but it's what I want for myself. Also, like, it feels very different in my body when I have compassion towards someone than when I'm judging them, you know? And I, I try and pay attention to that as well, you know? Um, that's important information. Yeah. So I, it, it it, it's not to say that who, what they've done or said is okay. This is why we have to separate. Like, I, I, I just desperately want to be able to say, look, um, we can call a thing what it is. So if your actions, your words, um, your work in the world has caused harm or perpetuates harm, let's call a thing what it is. Let's name that. But let, But maybe we can also have compassion for 
that person's whole story. What led them to this? Why do they not know this? What is the thing they're trying to make up for? Like that kind of stuff, we can have the compassion and also call a thing what it is. Because I think right now in this moment, if somebody has caused some kind of harm, if you attempt to have compassion for them, you're that's considered treason. <laughs> you know? yeah. And like, no, 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 no. Let's let's call a thing what it is, but also have an understanding of human beings. And I think also a lot of the times that we want to keep pointing the finger and show so much rage and outrage about every single thing that other people say and do is that it's a great smoke screen so that we never have to really look at our own shit. Yeah. You know, I mean, they're like when um like when uh Brian Williams, the the newscaster, you know, he had that, I love this term, fall from grace, right? It was not because he falsified a news account. He exaggerated a personal story and and was just absolutely slaughtered uh, for that. And all this outrage. Well, who among us has never exaggerated a personal story? (laughs) Are you kidding? Like, and every time we do it, it creates this icky feeling in us. And we know that we kind of exaggerated that thing. And those icky feelings build up and we got to do something with them. So we just wait for someone like Brian Williams to come along, who's so obviously worse at the thing we're a little bit bad at. And then we just all collectively thrust all of it on him. And then we, you know, cast him out of the village or we kill him. And theologically speaking, there's a term for that. It's called scapegoating. That is the scapegoat now. And so how much of our, you know, I never have to look at my own xenophobia. You know why? Because I have Trump supporters to blame. I get to focus all of it on them. And, I, and conveniently, then I don't have to ever look at mine. Yeah, and I think it's in, another thing to point out there is that as we do that, like if I say, oh yeah, I don't have to look at my, at how I have been racist for my entire life. I don't have to look at all the ways that I've turned my eye away from in order to live a life that is the comfortable life that I live. That as I begin to acknowledge that, to also, again, this comes back to the grace, but to make that space for there will most likely be a lot of sadness and pain as we own in ourselves all of these things that we have kept throwing onto other people. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. And, and again, like, maybe we can have compassion for that with each other. You know, of course, it's hard. You know why it's hard? Because it's hard. Yes. Also, (laughs) like, it's just not more complicated than that. And, and I think we can, we can do it. And the other thing is, the reason to do the work, especially around race in America is that um, it just it has a really not just the protecting the beloved children of God they're, they're the bodies that, that, that bear the image of God these black bodies that all of that is, is critical and hey let's look at the way that whiteness and white supremacy has obscured our own fucking souls from us as white people. It just, it has, it has stolen so much and we don't even see it because 
we're so used to thinking, oh no, this is, we got the goods. Like we, we have this great life and we, or whatever. I just, I, there's a cost to it. There's a, these are, to me, these are spiritual realities. St. Paul called it powers and principalities. And so we are in a system of powers and principalities where everything colludes to keep it all hidden from us. And yet we won't be free. We won't be whole. We won't have life and life abundant until we unmask these, these, these things that are just seething below the surface all the time. We have to get free. So there's a concern for like the souls of, of white folks, truly, just to go, I only say that because I, I've, I have just the smallest glimpse and I, I am a beginner with this, you know? And like, I've seen a glimpse of, of how vibrant and beautiful life can be when you get out of the whiteness bubble, you know? When, when, when your life has, has a lot more texture to it, has an understanding of what it is like to be brown in America, black in America, you know, when, when you have people in your life that, that aren't always exactly like you, it brings you more than it steals from you. And I, I guess I, it's just like my encouragement to the to folks starting this. Like there, there's so much more life to be had. And, you know, something else that I think that you said that is, is really, that fits here is you said, this is the resurrected God to whom we sing a God who didn't say we would never be afraid, but that we would never be alone. Mm. And I think what you're talking about right now, wherever we're starting, a lot of, all of um, weaving throughout this conversation is the fear, the fear of the pain or the fear of the calling out or the fear of all of this. And it's not that the fear won't be there, but to recognize it's not what it's about, but that we will never be alone. I think, yeah. Yeah. I also think it comes up a lot, which is something. So for a long time, I held on to this kind of, it's all good type of thing. Like I, I'm going to, I grew up in a home where my mom was social justice fighter really my whole life. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it was, and I was like, okay, I, my rebellion was everything's good. <laughs> the world is good. Having like been deeply steeped in all the ways that it's not. And, and one thing that you say that is, can we really afford quite so much sentiment, sentimentality in Christianity? Maybe soft focus photos of doves flying in front of waterfalls, inspirational verses on coffee cups, and overproduced recordings of earnest praise music aren't really helping us. I often wonder how Jesus' response to our ignoring of reality in favor of emotional idealism. But I know for sure that the church and those we might serve aren't benefiting from it, not when we live in a world where suffering is real, where people are longing for something to help make sense of their suffering. Pretending that everything is fine isn't helping anyone. So this is kind of the other side of what we've been talking about. There's the getting out there and taking action. And then there's also the, it's okay. It's all good. It's all as it's meant to be all in its divine timing type of thing. Yeah. Can, yeah. Can you just speak to that and to where, 
Yeah. Um, I guess, yeah, I mean, I, um, there's, you know, certainly a lot of versions of that in Christianity, but not exclusively. <laughs> like, I spoke of a lot of yoga festivals and right. mind, mindfulness things, you know, in the last couple of years. <laughs> and um, boy, there's, there's a lot of it there too, you know, just so much, um, so much power of positive thinking, you know, like, if we can just muster up the right kind of affirmations to say, you know, then everything will, everything will smooth out in our lives. And I don't know, I just don't, I don't see um, a lot of, even in sort of new age sort of yoga circles, uh, I think there's a, there is not a lot of calling a thing what it is, so to speak. Um, okay. So it's coming so, back to that of, mm, of mm. the naming Totally, totally. I mean, I, and I think that, you know, we, we can kind of reach for things that can feel like they will, you know, that that's really an anesthetic uh, when, but, but it seems like there's something more noble to it. Like if you can pawn off, um, like with self care, you know, if you can pawn off narcissism as a virtue, then like, great you know but I mean let's be serious like unless you're a single mom working two jobs on the verge of poverty I seriously doubt lack of self-care white ladies is your actual problem do you know what I mean you know, okay I actually would love you to say something about that because this is so interesting that you bring this up because I'm listening to a lot of different activists and one question that gets asked a lot of different women activists is how are you practicing self-care? And I kept thinking, why is that question bothering me? I can't understand why it's mm. bothering me. Mm. And why is it only asked of the women activists? What is, what is that? So do you have some kind of insight into that? Yeah. I mean, I think again, it's the, the difficulty of, of, of really, really telling the truth. So there are people in my life who their sort of personality default is to take care of everybody else's needs all the time. And truly they don't take care of their own needs. And they, and, and when asked a lot of times they couldn't even say what their needs are. So if, if that's the way you're wired and that's your default setting, then you have some work to do and probably figuring out how to take care of your own needs is going to, be part of your personal work. But if you're somebody who is already a bit self-focused, um, to lean into, the important thing is, is to put my oxygen, my oxygen mask on first before assisting others. I'm like, look, that particular piece of wisdom came from people at very high altitude. If you are, <laughs> if you are living at sea level going, I just have to put my oxygen mask on first or I can't help anyone. Well, you might have some stuff to look at. You know what I'm saying? I'm just saying, like, yeah. I'm just, just, we just have to tell the truth, you know? And it's real. I know it's so hard. I have a hard time with it. But, but if, if your default setting is already maybe a teeny bit self, being self-involved and you're thinking, you know, I just need to work on my self-care. Uh, I don't know. Is that true? <laughs> you know? But for some people, yes, it is true. So, I, you know, there's not sort of one answer here. But I think that if we are just also, you know, I do know some some people who are in caregiving roles in terms of being pastors or being 
being mothers or being activists where oh man they really do need to figure out how to how to re, how to rejuvenate so that they so that um, for two reasons one so they can keep doing the work but also to see the work goes on without them for a day mm-hmm. like that can be that can be a a really needed thing to realize as well you know that like if you take a day to take care of yourself the world doesn't fall apart yeah you know it doesn't always have to be you so but it's true I think that for most of us that's not the case I think mm. um I mean I'm not a pastor and mm. I am engaged in the world but not in a way where it's my everything mm. and I think um so I guess I'll just speak for myself when I hear that message a lot about prioritizing self-care and I do not have anything against self-care. I think it's really important. I think that um, this is another way that we can not do this, whatever it is that we feel called to do mm-hmm. is maybe it's demanding too much. Maybe I can't handle it. Yeah. 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 I mean, doing, doing our action, doing our personal work in terms of being able to like developing the muscles to be able to look at the truth of, of the things that we struggle with. What are our default settings that we will go to over and over if we aren't aware of them? What, what is the, what is the thing I say to myself about myself the most frequently? That kind of stuff. Like, getting really deeply honest, being able to do our work, being able to own our mistakes, being able to just speak the truth, have comp- to me, having compassion for myself is just looking at some of the, the sort of trickier parts of my personality and saying, yeah, these things are true. And also I'm very generous. And also, you know, to, to just hold those two, th- like m- nobody's ever only one thing you know to be able to hold two things at the same time that's true compassion for me and for myself and when i'm able to do that i'm more effective in the world and in my work whereas if i am not looking at stuff about myself i will indulge in things that allow me to deny that allow me to sort of deny the truth of it or to make up for the thing or to try and pretend it's not there or to get that need met in some weird ways in some weird sideways ways you know what I mean like if I haven't done my work so it's just it's critically important to me and and it's interesting because like I'm having a hard time you know I've that that podcast the confessional where people come on and tell me something they did or said that really haunts them. And um, I'm having a hard time booking the right guests for season two. And I real, you know, I did a sort of cattle call just like, Hey, if you've listened to the confessional and you think you'd be a good guest, you know, let me know. We had this email address set up and 95% of the emails were stories about things that have been done to them. Mm. And, and I get that. That's very real. There are institutions, there are people who have caused us harm, but we're, I think people are often so much more 
capable of telling a story about being a victim of something, of, of somebody else harming you, than to tell the story of when you perpetrated harm. Like, and I'm like, well, globally speaking, the math doesn't work out on that. Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? There is no way that there are literally that many people who have only ever had bad things done to them and have never done it to anybody else. Like, come on, people. But I think uh, just a lot of people haven't done that work, I guess. I don't know. The way we hold truth telling a lot of times is divulging the things that happened to us from, uh, at the hands mm-hmm. of others, mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. opposed to mm-hmm. what is the truth of me that totally. I don't want to share. Exactly. exactly. Or even what is it about me that will be drawn to that narrative over and over and over again? Namely, what am I getting out of it? Like there's some cookie there for me. You know what I mean? There's some reward to it. What is, if I am, if I myself, I have some stories that I've told over and over again to myself about a person or a situation. And I have to look at what am I getting from that? There's some payoff. Yes. There's some payoff. Um, Yes. You know, (laughs) is there a different way to frame it? Can you tell it from a different person's perspective and have it mean something else? Like, that to me is like freedom. <laughs> if I can, and look, there's a bunch of my stories I just am clinging to. I cannot let go of what it says about me, you know? Like I can't retell it, but some things I've been able to, to, to tell differently. For instance, just like how I think about my religious upbringing, to be honest, like that whole thing about not being able to leave fundamentalism, I, I realized that I felt free from the harm that had been done to me by growing up in a sort of misogynistic, patriarchal, fundamentalist Christian church. I was free from that when I was able to look back on that religious upbringing and not view it dualistically. When I could look back and admit there were some beautiful things, there were some positive things about that upbringing. And saying that didn't feel like a betrayal of the part of me that was hurt by the bad things. That's when I was free. That's the kind of freedom I want. And I want for other people. And you actually say, you said there's a popular misconception that religion, Christianity specifically, is about knowing the difference between good and evil so that we can choose the good. But being good has never set me free the way truth has. Correct. Yeah. And this thing that you just said about if I can look back and hold both, you're free when you're no longer held by the duality of it by yeah yeah by just you're so fixated on the harm and the harm is real and it deserves to be called what it is and absolutely i'm not saying that 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 harm isn't real or should be sort of named but i can become so fixated on being the one who was harmed that um that i that i am stealing from myself the, the whole truth that maybe there was also something good. Maybe there was also something beautiful because when I can look at it and not think of it dualistically, then there's, there's just, there's just freedom in it. You know, yeah. I mean, this is why, yeah. you know, right now, if somebody does something wrong, says something wrong, 
people find out they did something in the past, you know, and they're canceled to, to say that their work still has value. Maybe some of their artistic stuff they did in their career. We, I don't want to get rid of all of that. It, it's still good art. Ooh, people don't want to do that. You know, people, and there was actually an early church heresy around that. I think it was called Marcionism where, um, where there was a group that was so into this purity of the priest that they said, look, the sacrament, the Eucharist is only efficacious if it's presided over by a priest that's without sin. Right. So there was, there was this, uh, there were some priests who had hightailed it out of there, some clergy who had, when, it, when they were under persecution had left and they wanted them to be punished and not be welcomed back into the priesthood. And so they said, no, we can't welcome them back because they're, they shouldn't be allowed to preside at the sacrament. Um, and what they realized eventually is that nobody would be receiving the sacrament if the standard that we held was it could only be presided over by priests who had no sin. And so to this, I mean, how do we think of that with art, right? If, if, what do we think of Michael Jackson music? Does it have no value artistically? Is it something that we used to love? We're not allowed to love anymore because we found out this thing about him. And then where's the line? Like if somebody finds out something about me that they don't like, then does that cancel the good that all of my writing and speaking has done in the world? And where's the, where, where does it stop? Like what's bad, what's bad enough to be, to, to have the corpus of your life um, disregarded as as having like no good where's that line i mean yeah. it, 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 <laughs> i don't know i don't know yeah. yeah and then this comes back to the fear of showing up at all right because yeah. if i'm going to be judged that harshly if i'm going to judge as harshly as i <laughs> judge other people then right, right. geez i don't want to get right. i don't want to put myself out there and and this goes back to the thing about living in a time of complete subjectivity again <clears throat> and is that the downside of that is that there used to be agreed upon definitions for terms <laughs> like words there were, words used to have somewhat agreed upon definitions um words like trauma right abuse ptsd Victim, like there were things that kind of go, hey, there's some parameters around when we apply this word. But now, anybody who chooses to apply the word to themselves is completely um, respected and honored, and everyone says, absolutely, you're right. Um, it, even if the situation that they're referring to 10 years ago would never have fit within the parameters of the use of that word. So at a time of subjectivity like that, when a lot of people are not doing their own personal work and really owning their own stuff, there is now a mechanism in which people's lives can be destroyed by people applying terms to themselves and their experience vis-a-vis that person. It's concerning. Now, do I think that people who are abusive, who have caused harm, that, that that should be dealt with? Absolutely. But there has been a pendulum swing in which uh, it does, I'm like, how how is anybody willing to be a public figure anymore right now? Honestly, like, it's perilous. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, okay, so that brings me back to this idea that 
we've touched on many times now, but I think is so important as it relates to art activism, art and activism, which is the showing up and to recognize that it's complicated. Like to show up is not such a simple term as just show up that Mm. inside of that are so many layers of the judgment and the fear and the subjectivity Mm. and totally yeah and like if we can have a little more grace and compassion for people and if we can encourage people to keep doing their work to own their own stuff um i feel like that invites a lot more folks to be um to be in this work with us yeah and i want to read something else that you said because i think it speaks to it well which is so often in the church, being a pastor or a spiritual leader means being the example of godly living. A pastor is supposed to be the person who is really good at this Christianity stuff, the person others can look to as an example of righteousness. It's simply never been who I am or why my parishioners need or who my parishioners need me to be. Yeah, I am a leader, but only by saying, oh, screw it. I'll go first. Yeah, that's that's. That's what I call my form of leadership. Screw it, I'll go first. (laughs) And I think it's so important, though, to call attention to that because really holding it that way of, oh, man, I don't know. I don't know. Screw it. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to do it. Mm -hmm. And then it happens. I mean, isn't that what leadership is? Like, I'll just just go first, you know? That's not, I mean... That's all it is supposed to be, I think. Whereas it can be boiled down to like, you be the shining perfect example of the thing so that A, we don't have to do it. (laughs) Or B, so that as soon as we find out you're not perfect, we will crucify you. You know, well, I'm not really down for either of those things. But um, I don't mind uh, telling on myself, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't mind sort of admitting. I guess things I don't know or sort of awkwardly stumbling along just to try to get to the next place and going, okay, well, you can put your footsteps there. They're a little spread apart because I was stumbling, but knock yourself out. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? (laughs) I just, I, I keep coming back to this though, because I think we have, I, I have this idea or I've had this idea for a long time of in order to take action, in order to share what I make or to do what I want, there has to be some level of I've figured it out. And so you can look mm-hmm. to me and say, oh, look, she's doing a good job and all of that. And, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that we don't mess up and that we don't, that I don't fall flat on my face, that I don't say it wrong. And in some ways I'm repeating things that we've already talked about in different ways, but I just, I think that um, there's this element that we keep coming back to of we're human. It just comes down to the fact that we're human and we can't get around that no matter what we do. And, and maybe part of the compassion piece for each other is to like, to just be like, look, you know, it, okay, you did something, you made a mistake, you were humiliated, but like, you know what, I've learned and grown so much more 
from my humiliations than I ever have from my victories. Now, the victories feel better in the moment, but they certainly don't get me anywhere. Yeah. You know, and to go, okay, yeah, you made the mistake, but like you're going to, there's so much more to learn from that than there is from getting everything right, you know? So as we're finishing up, and I'll ask you another question at the end, but as we're finishing up here, it's like, I feel I'm, I'm just, there's, I feel like there's this question like at the edge of my thinking. So um, I guess what it is, is as a pastor, I wonder right now in this moment, and maybe you've already said it, but what feels strongest to say to people who say, I don't want to keep living out the same world that it is. I want a different world and I'm scared and Mm -hmm. I, and I want to make change and I want to stand for things that I believe in. And I don't want to put up with this anymore, or I don't want to be okay with this anymore. Mm. What what do you have to say? I, I think to say, just the same thing which is like you you're not doing it alone not only do you have other sort of stumblers and beginners (laughs) but you also have people who are farther along but more importantly i just believe we also have god cheering us on like i i believe like jesus said i came to bring life and life abundant so that all may have life and life abundant and that that is the path toward that. And so there is this sort of divine impetus to this. That doesn't mean we get God to co-sign on all of our statements, right? But to say that I think that there is a spiritual reality to this work that can help drive us along. There's a reason why, um, you know, churches and religious leaders we're very much involved in like the civil rights movement in America Um, and to go, Hey, I know that it's hard for us, especially as white folks to, to be like, look, I think of my ancestors and I cringe. Right. But also there are people, there are people who have gone before us who have been engaged in struggle that we can sort of rely on their faith and their, their sort of, energy even in the world that's still present to keep propelling us forward so i just i think there is a there is a positive compelling spiritual um energy to this work that can help us know that we're not alone we're not when i say we're not doing it alone i mean we're not doing it alone in a spiritual way too yeah you had said this, this is the last thing I'll, I'll read and then go into the last part. But you said the greatest spiritual practice is just showing up. Showing up to me means being present to what is real, what is actually happening. And then you said this was a, a different at a different time. You said in the wake of Haiti's devastation, I started to imagine Mary, Jesus's mother, tugging at the shirt of Jesus and saying, I will not keep silent. I will obey you and I will tell others to obey you, but I will not keep silent. People are thirsty. And I love that. Like mm-hmm. people are thirsty. We can yeah. just start there. Totally. 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 And 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 like bodies matter in the sense that in terms of my own Christian belief, like to believe that God decided 
to have of all things a human body and walk among us um to me that that has baptized has sanctified has has proven holy every single human body so what happens to human bodies what happens to our human bodies matters to god and so um that to me is a compelling piece of of this as well when we say black lives matter we're saying black bodies matter that they carry the image of god within them and just like every other human body are worthy to be honored and protected and revered so that is a basic christian idea to me okay i have to say one last thing then before i do this last part i keep saying this but <laughs> this feels really important it said something else you said while we as a people of god are certainly called to feed the hungry and clothe the naked that whole we're blessed to be a blessing thing can still be kind of dangerous it can be dangerous when we self-importantly place ourselves above the world waiting to descend on those below so we can be the blessing they've been waiting for like it or not <laughs> Plus seeing, myself, <laughs> plus seeing myself as the blessing can pretty easily obscure the ways in which I'm actually part of the problem and can hide the ways in which I too am poor and needing care. We can start to see the poor as supporting characters in a big story about how noble, selfless, and helpful we are. And I just think this is something that hasn't come up yet, but is, is another side of the coin is like mm -hmm. being present to that. Where is it coming from? Oh yeah, man. There's nothing we love better than that blend of paternalism and benevolence, <laughs> you know, <laughs> where we get to be cast in a certain role within that drama. Uh, I mean, that's why I, I get it can be off-putting the idea that we're doing this for our own liberation as well. It can be off-putting because it seems to be centering whiteness again. But, but, but what I mean by that is it can't be, hey, we're we we're the noble good white people who have decided to you know sully ourselves enough to work on this race problem together <laughs> jesus it's like that the paternalistic instinct within whiteness is very strong and um so how how do we sort of engage in the work without indulging in that yeah hard you know yeah yeah and so i just put that out there just as a like okay mm -hmm. we haven't gone deep into this but it is important to name another thing to mm -hmm. name yeah. um okay so as we go into this very last section the first thing is to let people know where to find you and so there's a couple places one is your website nadia bolts weber which is n-a-d-i-a B as in Bob, O-L-Z, W-E-B-E-R.com. And also on Instagram at Sarcastic Lutheran. And then you have the podcast, The Confessional, as you mentioned, and Substack, which you said is really one of the best ways to be in touch with you. Just say what that is exactly. Uh, Substack is like my, just my little corner of the internet where I'm actually in conversation with people and where I post, um, essays and Q and A and stuff like that. So it's just a little, it, it, the, um, the subtitle of the corners is grace for fuck ups. <laughs> so if that's appealing to you and you want to engage with me and my work, it, you can find me on Substack. Yeah. So it could be either grace for fuck ups or grace for humans. Like it could be either of those. Those so, are interchangeable. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, something that I do on my podcast and sort of carry over here is uh, before I ask the last question, which is a gratitude. And 
honestly, I have, I have felt since I was little, some drawing to like drawn somehow to something that is outside of myself and, Mm. um, and never felt like I had any place where I, I could point to and say, that makes sense. I like that interpretation. Mm. And then I came across, I don't even remember when I came first learned about you, but it was a while ago. And I thought, Oh my gosh, look what she's doing. She like, you're, you're, you're naming what it is to be human. And then you're putting it in the context of this God that loves us, not just in spite of, but because of our humanity Mm -hmm. and holding that we get to both believe in whatever God means to us. We get to believe in God and we get to be fully who we are. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with being fully who we are. Mm-hmm. And, and you lead that every single time you share anything because you start with this idea of, hey, <laughs> if there's anyone that screwed up, I'm, I'm it, you know, and let me just share what my experience is as I go through this world and am walking this path with you. And so I just am so grateful for the way you found your way in Christianity and with God, and then gave that to those of us who, and I'm Jewish, I'm not Christian, but gave that to those of us who said, I don't get it. And then, oh, here's a way to get it. Here's a way. Oh, to that's sense. lovely. Thank you for that. That I receive that as a benediction because um, I feel like it, to hear you say that makes me go, oh, okay. I maybe I can keep going. <laughs> Please, <laughs> keep doing it. Oh, keep going. It's really very, very kind. It was very nice to hear you say that. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, and you're welcome. <laughs> So the last question, actually, again, I want to read something because this ties into this whole overarching thing of what is this world that we want to live Mm. into? And like Mm. I said, for everyone, it's going to be different, but I'm going to read this and then just ask you, Mm -hmm. you said, this is it. This is the life we get here on earth. We get to give away what we receive. We get to believe in each other. We get to forgive and be forgiven. We get to love imperfectly and we never know what effect it will have for years to come. And all of it, all of it is completely worth it. So what does that look like to you right now? The all of it that's worth it. Like what is this world that you're creating and living into? Oh gosh, it's a challenging time to answer that question. I know. (laughs) I mean, I feel like everything I've taught or preached or written or said is, is being, um, challenged you know to be true and 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 sometimes I say these things to dare them to not be true so I think that um I think that seeing how much the world has changed in the past few months how common an experience it is dealing with the coronavirus seeing the uprise the uprising in terms of race in America it's made me go oh I think that the things I believe are truer 
than I even originally thought. Rather than saying, oh yeah, now these, I think maybe I might've been wrong. It's not like me, but to say, oh yeah, all of that stuff matters. Small kindnesses matter. The way your eyes can light up behind your mask when you're smiling at the cashier in gratitude can matter. The, the you know, um, owning our shit matters in a deeper way than maybe I was even thinking when I was writing that stuff. That, um, you know, that the divine impetus behind this, the movement that we're in matters. So I think that I I feel a little humbled by sort of not even realizing the scope of these things when I was originally writing them and sort of it's all being sort of more revealed to me as being true that grace and compassion and forgiveness and truth telling. Oh my God, if we don't have that, we're doomed. You know, I think I just believe that even more now. Mm. Thank you so much, Nadia. Thank you. It was lovely to talk to you. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for listening to the beauty and wisdom of Nadia Boltzweber. Thank you for being part of the Beyond Podcast community. And if anything about this conversation has sparked something in you that you want to share with others, please do or that you just want to take your time with and reflect on, then I obviously encourage that. And if you'd like to leave a review over at iTunes, you can do so by subscribing to the podcast and leaving a review. The reviews help to broaden the reach of the podcast and to support all of the guests and myself who are on the podcast. So thank you so much for that. And thank you for listening.